well known. The first from John chapter 4. Jesus traveling through a foreign land and waiting by a well whilst his followers head into town to get food. It's hot, noon, when decent folk stay indoors in the shade. But a lone woman heads along the path in need of water. There she finds Jesus, who asks her if she can give him a drink. And so begins a surprisingly direct conversation in which he says he can provide her with living water and that he is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. When the disciples return, the, water, the woman leaves the water jar and seemingly now filled with this living water, runs back to her home to bring out the whole town. Story two, a parable. Two sons, one father, and the youngest son wants out. His share of the estate in cash, which he then takes far away and squanders in wild living until there's nothing left. Famine hits the land, and this young son, a Jew who has flouted presumably most, if not all of the purity codes of his father's household, now starving and desperate, goes one step further, finding work, feeding pigs, until he comes to his senses. What has he done? In his father's house, there's always more than enough. Bankrupt, he heads home. But when he's still a long way off, his father runs to greet him, throws his arms around his child and kisses him before the broken boy can even begin to stutter the well-rehearsed declaration. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Shame for both these characters, the man and the woman, the son and the Samaritan, both in their own way taking the long walk of shame. Unashamed. In the opening passages of the Bible, Adam and Eve are in the garden walking naked and in easy proximity with God. They feel no shame. But this does not last. And as soon as their eyes are opened, their response is to hide from God, from one another, and actually from themselves. I once took the story of the Samaritan woman and made it a theme of a two-day-and-a-half-day conference in India. Every day, John 4. And at the end of this time, um, many came forward to give testimony to what God had done in their lives over those days. Not that we could understand any of it, of course, because it was in enthusiastic Telugu. In the long car journey back from that place, we got to hear a few snippets of translation that had been said. And I vividly remember one comment. The speaker giving her testimony had said that when on that very last day we had turned once again to John 4, she had thought, oh no, not this again. 
But as, but as that thought left her mind, she said God spoke clearly to her in reply and said, you are the woman at the well. Gosh, I thought, God spoke to her. But what on earth had she been up to? And then in response to her criticism as I heard it, oh, not this again, an essence of kickback went through my mind. Probably not really thought through, but under a microscope would read something like this. Who does this peasant woman think she is to criticize us who have spent such a lot of money and time on this trip? So in this story, what do we know about the woman? We know that she is alone, that the community who do this journey, it's a common journey, have sensibly chosen the cool of the day to make it. Whereas this woman, whether it's her choice and she's deliberately removed herself from company, or if she has been excluded, she walks in the hottest part of the day. She doesn't have a husband, she tells Jesus, and he commends her for her honesty Indeed, he tells her, she's had five husbands, and the man that she's living with at the moment, she's not married to. How do you see this woman? Six men, five marriages. Surely a story of promiscuity, a marriage breaker, a woman in control of her own destiny, and not caring who gets in the way of her desires. To be honest, that is exactly who I thought her to be for years and years. And it's only quite recently that I began to see another side. One that revealed that most women in those days could not actually initiate a divorce. Uneducated, unskilled, vulnerable and powerless, not owners of land or possessions, and as such, utterly dependent on a man, any man, to support them and to allow them to survive. Often, as was the custom of the day, when widowed, passed on to a brother. And so this Samaritan woman made her way again from the town to the well. An ordinary day, a familiar journey. How do you picture her? Abuser? or abused. And Jesus waits. What does he see? Well, I tell you what he sees. He sees a child of his father, beloved and precious, one made in the image of his family, and as so poetically put, knitted together by unseen hands in her mother's womb. A daughter whose name has been engraved on the palms of his father's hands. Indeed, he saw her in just the same way as he sees you and he sees me, one in whom the creator of heaven and earth delights, loved and cherished, of great worth, just as you are. Yes, seriously, just as you are. Today we're launching a new series of talks entitled 
unashamed. And over the course of this year, we are inviting speakers in, some with professional hats on and some speaking from their own experience, to cover just some areas that can cause shame. We'll be looking at physical illness, depression, addiction and burnout. And the suggestion for the series has come out of a picture that we can sometimes be like in life. The picture is of a hospital bed, and it's very neat, and the sheets are perfectly tucked in at the ends, just how they're taught to do in hospital. And it all looks so good. The patient is sick. It's a picture where presentation is given more merit than circumstances. And it's sometimes just how we appear. How are you? Oh, good. Good, thank you. Yeah, very good. It is a condition that's common to all mankind. But perhaps as followers of Jesus, it takes on an extra edge. After all, haven't we been chosen? Aren't we sons and daughters of the living God for whom nothing is impossible? And as as Phil prayed today, whose plans are to prosper us new creations, and in, and in relationship with Jesus, who came to heal and set free. Unashamed, but actually, really, in reality, often dealing with shame. And never mind, too, the shame that keeps others away from feeling that they could ever darken the door of a church and be accepted. What is shame? Brené Brown, an American research professor, spent six years studying shame. In her funny, very listenable to TED Talks, Brown says shame drives two big tapes inside us. Never good enough, and who do you think you are? Never good enough, and who do you think you are? She says shame is not guilt Shame is a focus on ourselves. Guilt is a focus on our behavior. Guilt says, I did something bad. I'm sorry I made a mistake. Shame says, I am bad. I am sorry. I am a mistake. And shame, although it feels the same inside, generally shows up in different ways according to gender. For a woman, it can tend to be the result of unobtainable, conflicting, and competing expectations of who exactly we are supposed to be. And for men, it's often different and more about never being perceived to be weak. According to Brown, all of us can know the warm wash of shame. And if that makes you bristle inside, can I just add... It is believed that only those people who have no capacity for connection or for empathy feel no shame. Brown says shame is an epidemic in our culture, thriving as it does on three fueling factors. Silence, secrecy, and judgment. But to overcome it takes two things. Firstly, it requires vulnerability. Vulnerability is not weakness. That's a myth. Vulnerability 
takes courage. And the second thing is empathy. Someone drawing alongside you saying, I understand. You are the woman at the well, God said to the woman at the conference in India. I have thought on this often as I have prepared for this talk. The memory of that car journey now fading, but the sentence still repeating. You are the woman at the well, going over and over in my mind. Yes, that is what God said to that Indian woman. Like a tape, it continued to play. Couldn't seem to stop it. And now I began to talk directly to God. God, that's what you said to that woman in India, isn't it? But God kept silent. The sentence just played on. Well, this is ridiculous. I am obviously not the woman at the well. I have no similarity to that Samaritan woman. Time went past, me fighting this obnoxious, wretched thought, wearing me down, needing to get on with this talk, until eventually, in sheer desperation, okay, Lord, okay, I am the woman at the well, but please tell me what has brought me here. And no sooner had the cry left me, two words dropped gently into my mind, ego and pride. And so began the next wrangle. What did all this mean? I don't understand. Woman at the well, my ego and pride. Ah, yes, of course, I knew this to be true. In fact, if we're talking about ego and pride, then I think this is better seen by looking at the other characters in these two stories. You see, if I'm going to relate to anybody in this triangle of people, I am the disciples looking at this woman, and I am surely the older brother. Jesus' disciples, his trusted followers, sent to sort out the practical issues of lunch. No doubt exhausted, from the beginning of chapter 4, it tells us that they've been doing very important work, baptizing Jews in Judea hot and hungry, and most probably extremely frightened. They're in a foreign country on enemy territory. They may have gone into the town, been spat at, charged extortionate prices for the food. And now they return to their master, who's in the company of this cursed woman. But their judgment was silent, the story tells us. No silence for the prodigal son's older brother, the dutiful son who had not left but continued to work hard for his father. No, from him, an angry rant revealing insecurity, bitterness, self-pity and jealousy. Look, all these years I have been slaving for you. These stories are just too familiar to us, aren't they? These characters from ancient times and ancient culture, they've lost the cutting edge to cause a reaction in us. But what about replaying these characters, say, with Shamima Begin, 
the young woman who at 15 left Bethnal Green and headed to Syria and now wants to come back with her baby. Or say Sir Philip Green, British billionaire businessman and chairman of the Arcadia Group, who once included the now defunct BHS chain. Now are we engaged. Now do we have an opinion, a judgment to share. Now might we begin to understand the disciples' gut feeling towards this individual before them. So obviously a fallen woman. Her race traitors to the Jewish nation. And in the story of the youngest son, imagine half the family money squandered, poured down the drain, feeding pigs, betrayer of family values, and revulsion at his father's uninhibited, pitifully weak, as he saw it, response to his brother's return. Judge and jury, the righteous observers, ego and pride in who they were. Ego, a person's sense of self-esteem or self-importance, separate and superior, self-protective, and pride. Well, my reaction to the Indian woman's comments about running the conference for two and a half days on John 4. The Bible says a lot about pride, and it's not good. James 4, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. My shame ego and pride. And then a new insight unfolding in my mind of a heavenly father and a son in position, watching and waiting, and the humbled prodigal son and the Samaritan making their way to the meeting place. Jesus, the Messiah, and a conversation with a woman who he asks for water. A woman whose questions are inquisitive, open, intelligence, showing faith and doubt, talking face to face, eye contact for the one with the empty jar and the the other who was and who is the source of living water. Her honesty when asked to call her husband, I have no husband, she replied. And his reply, you are right, followed by 18 words summing up years of heartache and pain, layers of history and emotion, and he knows it all, the husband's, the present situation. Nothing hidden from a God whose presence we cannot escape and whose love nothing can separate us from. Unashamed now. The woman filled with the living water runs into the town and says to all those who know her, come see the man who told me everything I've ever done. Astonishing. What a statement. Shame replaced by love and acceptance. Shame is a deeply powerful emotion. The quiet whisper in our heads I'm not good enough. 
and maintained, as Brown says, in silence, secrecy, and judgment. Like stones inside us, weighing us down, dark, untouched places, stones in the wells of our life and blockages to the springs of living water the Lord longs to fill us with. Restored and transformed, the Samaritan woman brought the whole town out to meet with Jesus. 2 Chronicles 7 verse 4, a familiar verse in this church. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I was shocked to hear that call, you are the woman at the well. I hated it. How could that be? I am not her. But you see, I made a mistake. I was looking at it wrongly. This is not what God was saying. I got distracted by her fallenness and my judgment. We don't know know what her life was like. But we do know one thing. She was broken. Now, I think God was pointing out something very different. He was talking about the well where Jesus is, the meeting place, the sweet spot, the precious place, where the broken stand in the presence of their Savior, a place apart where all else has fallen away, a place of honesty and openness, nothing hidden, vulnerability and exchange. No better place to be where we can know that we are truly loved and accepted, unashamed. For the prodigal son, a place where his rags were replaced by robes, his hunger with a feast. God was inviting me to recognize this, and I just needed to understand. I've had this talk on my heart for many months now, knowing from that for this series, I wanted to talk about the Samaritan woman, and I wanted to talk about the prodigal son. What I didn't plan for, though, was where it would take me, the distress and discomfort and searching for understanding. What I was also unprepared for was that I would be speaking at the start of this week of prayer and of outreach. This was not planned, but this is how it has turned out. Shame can take many forms, sense of failure, loss, mistakes made, rejection, self-loathing. The list goes on and on. Some are very obvious. Most, I suspect, are not. Today, I have been led to talk about ego and pride, attitudes that can take the place of trusting in a loving God, protecting ourselves from vulnerability, and an openness to receiving, because we're seeking to find our worth elsewhere, in achievement, performance, accomplishment, appearance, or worthiness of some sort. I think it's in our human nature, but it doesn't allow for God's grace. 
I stand before you and say, I have known this to be true in my own life. And I have known how it feels when everything comes crashing down. I have known what it feels to be broken and to try and hide that brokenness. And then being given the gift of being allowed to be vulnerable. And through that, to find healing. Because as it was sin that caused brokenness in the Garden of Eden and introduced shame, it is brokenness that brings us back, just as these two central characters, the son and the woman, have shown, unashamed. Ultimately, the path to discovering, really discovering grace, comes through finding acceptance and hope in our brokenness realizing that truly God is there at the end of our rope, the embrace of love running towards us before we've even spoken a word. So apparent in Jesus' ministry, his inclusion, compassion, mercy and kindness to the outcast, the least, the lost and the last. God from the beginning using the most unlikely figures Just look at the characters in the Bible, read their stories, see their shame. Flawed individuals, wounded individuals who came to the end of their own resources and there flung themselves on a God who did not disappoint, but greeted them with grace and with mercy. 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you and made perfect in weakness. But I cry, I don't want to be weak. Isaiah 61, beauty from ashes. We nearly gave this series this title. I've known that verse for years, but realized for the first time when I was preparing the talk that there must be ashes first, that this kind of beauty doesn't come without ashes I believe many of you here today know what it's like to be broken. God spoke to the woman in India, and the message was translated to me, you are the woman at the well. And now I think my purpose in speaking this morning is to actually pass that message on to you. You are the woman. You are the man at the well. Or perhaps you are the prodigal son. You are the prodigal daughter. It is a call to the meeting place, the sweet spot, the place of filling. And like a well, it's not a one-off appointment. No, we are to go there again and again, daily, always available, minute by minute. God's presence with us, felt or unfelt. Finally. Is that right? Finally. No. It is in this place of commissioning as we head out over the next few months to invite others to hear the good news. Knowing we too are messy and yet in Christ we have found the hope of the world. Our faith not an insurance policy against trouble, illness, loss, or pain. We go in no way superior, 
No hierarchy of righteousness, no observers uninvolved, no simply one beggar telling another beggar where we found food. You know, the woman at the well and the prodigal son were really just beginning a new chapter in their lives, one that was going to involve processing where they were in their lives. Things to be dealt with, we're all on a journey. I am coming to the end of my talk, but just before we share communion, we're going to spend a brief period in silence and contemplation to respond and think through in the silence of our hope, heart what has been said and to respond. I do believe, while I have been talking on this subject of shame and unashamed, for a number of us in this place, God has been disturbing something in you. Maybe it's only an impression, just a gentle touch, like the touch of a butterfly's wing. So small, it could very easily be overlooked. But remembering the stones that I talked about that impede the flow of the fountains of living water, I believe you're being invited to deal with this, mindful of the fact that even the tiniest stone in a shoe can create damage and pain. For others, there's a much heavier weight of knowledge of a stone or stones of shame that are holding you down, even though you hear your Father in heaven saying, you are my child, you are enough. You need help to be set free. Empathy and compassion that can only come with time and walking the journey with a trusted and wise friend or help and guidance from somebody perhaps you don't know, be it in a book or in person, who can bring light to these deep areas of sadness. To help with this, we have produced on one of these pages of your sheet um, pointers in support of the Unashamed series. And each time we are covering the Unashamed series, they will be added to. This is no way a definitive list, but it might help with guidance. Finally, and maybe just for one person here, I have been a Christian for many years, read many books and heard many talks, And I trust that over this period, the transformation and the renewing of my mind that Paul talks about has been gently taking place. However, sometimes it's not gentle, and a sentence or a line has spoken out and had such an impact on me. A few years ago, in a small group, we were working our way through John Ortberg's book, Soul Keeping. And if I remember rightly, the subject was about choice. How the way that we can choose to respond is the one thing, the last thing that can be taken away from us. And I came to this question and it hit me like a body blow. This question I want to leave with you now. As I did in the study, I'm going to use my own name, but you may choose to insert yours. The question simply asked, Sarah, If you do not choose to change, what will you be like in five years' time, in ten years' time, and even when you're in your 80s? Making a choice to change can be incredibly tough and overwhelming. 
but taking small steps, tiny steps, begins the journey. In this time of quiet now, if this is spoken to you, may I invite you to take one small step of action. Make a decision to tell someone, ask for prayer, or find help from the information provided. Thank you.